welcome to Research Integrity Matters, the podcast where Gauri and Marino discuss research integrity and its importance to research quality with academic experts from a multidisciplinary perspective. Research Integrity Matters is co-initiated and sponsored by Netherlands Research Integrity Network, and all our episodes can be found on nrin.nl. My name is Marino, and this is the third episode of Research Integrity Matters. Today we have Chris Hartgerink on the podcast. Chris was awarded their PhD in Methodology and Statistics from Tilburg University in 2020 for their work on building sustainable science. They was a Mozilla Open Science Fellow and is currently a Shuttleworth Fellow. They've been awarded a cumulative amount of circa 1 million United States dollars to do their work since 2014. After reflecting on their experiences during the PhD, they actively left academia to change the way research work is done on all levels. Together with their Liberate Science team, they is realizing this on multiple levels. So welcome, Chris. Um, and perhaps you can talk a bit more about uh, what it is that you actually do and how you got to this point in your career. Yeah, that's a, that's a very broad question, so I hope I, I can fit it into one podcast episode. But thanks for having me on. I, <clears throat> I listened to the first few episodes. I saw some familiar names and already quite some good points raised, so I'm looking forward to continuing the discussion here. But um, yeah, the, the, the short answer to that question is really that throughout my career, I've noticed that a lot of research work goes invisible. And that's why I'm doing this work. It's about making more of that research work visible. Uh, but the longer story is that I started out as a social psychology undergraduate student, come from a first generation. Uh, I'm a first generation student, so I come from a family when nobody else went to university. And uh, I got super interested in research, even though I thought I never would be, uh, by Dirk Stapel, who ended up being becoming the most well-known psychology and the biggest psychology fraud in known history. And so I, it sort of shook me at a very early stage of, you know, does the science system work as well as it could or as it should or ought, uh, whichever way you want to frame it. And this was also the start of a bigger conversation around not just fraud, but questionable research practices, which later, you know, also snowballed into conversations around recognition and rewards and incentives. And so I very early on was exposed to these issues. And when I did my, my master thesis, I, my supervisor then said, yeah, you know, uh, there's this new thing out, uh, the open science framework, I think it's called, and maybe you could, you know, put all your stuff on there and document how, how things went. And thought this makes perfect sense why did nobody else tell me this before uh, because it's it it felt rather straightforward i'm from 1991 myself so you know I'm a, I'm a kid who was born in the same month as the web so to me there's nothing else and i think that uh, you know uh, graduate students who are now maybe 10 years younger than me even they they probably don't know anything else uh, even more so so it made a lot of sense to share this stuff, but then I tried to improve my own work. I tried to, at the university, change policy to make more work open access. But in the end, it was always very difficult and individualized. So I ended up uh, you know, doing a lot of work in my own research. Uh, in the last episode, there was a lot of discussion also around, you know, it's a lot of hard work, but what's in it for me? And then I was very convinced, you know, I need to do this. But then at the end of the process, in the, in the publication process, you know, it was always somewhere relegated uh, to the side. A reproducible manuscript 
you know, all, all that's very nice, but of a, you know, the final publication, nobody's going to see it. And so it always felt like these editions were a bit of an add-on to the publication system. And then you know, when I was doing a fellowship at Mozilla, I started reading a lot about these uh, other approaches to science communication, science publishing. And there was a super interesting paper from researchers affiliated with Elsevier, ironically enough. Uh, for those who know me, know I don't have uh, the best relationship with the, with the publisher. But they, ironically enough, came up with this idea of modular publishing. So really to publish research step by step and have all of these different steps or modules uh, be connected with one another uh, so that over time you can really sort of understand how the research evolves. I mean, the exact details of how they uh, propose it, I don't know, but that's sort of where I ended up. And then I thought, you know, that's a, that's a great idea. Uh, that was sort of the end of my PhD. I had a design of how to do this. And ever since, uh, you know, you already mentioned I left academia and I thought, okay, how can I realize this? And that's how I founded Liberate Science, how Research Equals in the end uh, got started. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But th that's sort of a, you know, a, a rough uh, rundown of the past, what is it, 14 years already. It's quite a story. Um, I must say, um, um, uh, indeed, uh, good to mention disclaimer, Chris and I have co-published um, uh, work on the publication system. So that's good for our listeners to know that I've been, well, I know some of your um, work because uh, I, I think I contributed. Yeah, it showed, it showed a tiny bit in the episode with you and Anina. Yeah. Well, it felt like you were showing it. <laughs> Um, so let's talk more about the publication system because you've well mentioned already um, 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 uh, somewhat about this, um, and most of your work I think is focused on improving like like the way we communicate research um, and um, the way that it's done. Um, so can you perhaps for our listeners talk a bit more about um, uh, the way research work currently is done, and um, because you've well. Uh, you're proposing an alternative, probably it's flawed in some way. Um, and perhaps you can elaborate a bit more on that as well. Yeah, so also with this question, like there's so much to cover here. So uh, just naming a few things, right? I, we already talked about questionable research practices, selective publication, um, what's often called p-hacking. And there's many variants of this sort of just driving results towards what you desire instead of uh, what the process shows you. And I think that also immediately goes towards the heart of the problem. I, I've said before, it's very individualized when you try to improve things, but the publishing system is sort of this bottleneck you have to go through. And uh, it's the same with, uh, in terms of, you know, selective publication, you might want to reduce that for yourself, but at the very end, if you have results that aren't necessarily a nice story, they might not get published as easily. And then subsequently, they might either get lost by not being published at all, because peer reviewers say, what's the added value of this? Uh, or it gets published in a place where nobody sees it. So uh, there's a lot of specific issues, a lot of symptoms uh, that, that pop up, but it's this underlying question of, well, what is the problem? What is the diagnosis, so to say? And I know that um, there's this funny paper by Yui Tidink where he actually sort of tries to diagnose different uh, disorder. he's a, he, disorders. He's a psychiatrist by training. Um, and so, you know, one of my main things is 
back when publishing started, it was really innovative just to be able to even distribute results at a much larger scale that you didn't have to copy it by hand back in 1665. And then all of a sudden, people could actually distribute copies uh, to these gentlemen clubs uh, back then uh, to be able to read it. And so in that sense, there is this point where even then, publishing was all about community. It wasn't necessarily the technology that was very interesting. It was the community of scholars you could share work with. And if we take that concept to uh, you know 2023, what are the community that we're sharing it with and what is, what is actually the community space that we're creating? And in the end, that's what a journal is doing. It's curating a community space for people with similar interests to meet either tangentially by reading other people's work uh, or more intensely in the review process. So when we talk about changing the publication system, we also need to talk about, well, how do we create these community spaces? I said before, it's... In 1665, it was more the gentleman club, and women weren't even imagined to be a part of that. And there's still, you know, consequences from that today. Most of the editorial boards, uh, they're communities of white men very often, um, or at least male passing. And so you get this question of how and what kind of community do do we want to build and I think publishing is much more about the social aspect than the um, than the technology of actually sharing the work uh, in and of itself by printing or by you know putting it in a truck that runs on fossil fuels and kills the earth. Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree with you. Having studied research integrity, questionable research practices for the last four years, um, so I'm curious when you talk about you know uh, opening up science and the publishing system, uh, how do you feel open science in that way? Because that's essentially what it's trying to do through pre, uh, preprints, uh, for example. So instead of waiting for uh, a, cu- a group of individuals within a journal environment to curate the research, accept, reject, or modify it, uh, a preprint, which is a non-peer-reviewed manuscript, attempts to share research findings by researchers immediately. Do you, do you feel, in your opinion, that that is one step forward in trying to change the journal-dominated way of sharing research? Yeah, it, it for sure is. And I think that by now, you know, five years ago, the, the term non-peer-reviewed manuscript would still apply. But now we see more and more that preprints are actually being reviewed outside of the journal system with peer community in or pre-review, who was actually the, you know, the originator of this idea uh, back in, I think, 2018. To, so we're not even talking about non-peer-reviewed manuscripts anymore, but it's about sort of shifting this community from the journals outside. And I think that's a, that's a great, great initiative uh, that we really need because they also have the opportunity to change how this feedback is given. Um, many, many listeners probably recognize that review experiences can be horrible. I think the acronym nowadays is reviewer two, and then the sentiment immediately comes up. Uh, but all in all, this question of open science, whether that is a good uh, move, I think that over the past 10 years, I've identified a lot as an open science proponent. Um, but as you said in the last episode, these big uh, collective sort of names, they make it difficult to really understand what people stand for. 
And I think with open science by now, we've hit that point as well. So I always like to say that, you know, in the end, it's about researchers being able to share the information that they want when they need to, uh, so that they also have the agency to do it. And now, for example, with these reproducible manuscripts that I mentioned before, uh, I didn't really have the option to share that through the regular publishing system. So there was this friction point. And then you really get to this question of, well, do we even have the liberty to think radically and imagine what else could be, what other futures we could create, or are we even in a situation where that isn't even where that isn't possible, where we're so stuck that um, that we cannot start creating and shifting that narrative towards something that we actually want to see? Yeah, and I think that happens on many layers in society nowadays. I mean, one of the things that I noticed, you know, during particularly during the COVID outbreak, uh, where there's naturally, uh, you know, an increase in uh, uptake of information, is that you frequently came across, at least on social media, I frequently came across, this is a non-peer-reviewed manuscript. Obviously, there was, you know, an explosion of preprints being shared on COVID-19. These were then being spread on social media. Uh, but often there is that look, uh, there is a need to look for that stamp of approval, and that still remains within the journal jurisdiction. That's at least my impression uh, from the public. Yeah. So what do you think we need to do to change that? Because I still think that the public largely has the perception that journal peer review is the gold standard of whether this is a quality piece of research or not. And as researchers on the inside, we know better. However, I still think that there's a lot of work that we need to do to bridge that miscommunication in a way and that misunderstanding or the misaligned expectation in order for preprints to also start becoming a sort of a norm within different research groups, but also within the public. What do you think we can do to change that perception? Yeah, I, I mean, I must admit, I've never spoken to anybody on the street and they say, you know, peer review is the gold standard of research, just like uh, when people ha- are on the street are asked about open access, they're going, what's this? I, I don't know. And so in that sense, as uh, researchers ourselves, we need to first stop, stop talking about peer review as the gold standard, because as you said, we know it isn't. And on the flip side, having no feedback mechanism some checks at all also isn't good, right? Because then, as you mentioned, there was plenty of work that was pre-printed, for example, or even published in peer-reviewed journals, which is just utter trash and had uh, big consequences for the people who read it. You know, people will selectively read these things anyway. And I think the, the idea of trying to prevent this selective reading or this misinterpretation, it puts the bar like incredibly high and no potential... Um, change that we want to make is going to, going to suffice. Uh, that to say, I think that review in itself is really an under-evaluated concept to, um, to change. So very often also with these peer, uh, preprint review initiatives, it's very often how do we bring the review that we were doing in journals into the preprint space, peer community in, how do we bring the reviews that we were already doing with its issues in essence as well, into the space of just uh, community organized. And that's an improvement. But then let's ask this question, what can we do about review to make that something that isn't just a, um, a test you have to go through 
like almost the litmus test. Uh, but how do we make that something that is actually very joyful? Where when you get a review, you actually get excited and you go like, okay, what, what is this reviewer going to bring? And that it's no longer trying to tear something apart, but about trying to build each other up. So I've started to think about, well, how do we talk more in terms of peer feedback? And how do we actually think about, you know, when we get, when, when I get a paper to review, I try to always think about, well, what are things I like? What are things that could have gone better uh, from my perspective? And what are things that, uh, that need, we need to look out for that could become things that could have gone better in the future? And that's also how we in our team sort of every month take a moment to give each other feedback. We create these spaces to say, well, you know, I really liked how you broached this difficult topic of talking to me about, you know, gender equality on the work floor and how language was being used inconsiderately. Um, we should look out for uh, maybe other areas where that might also happen. Can we have a meeting where we can sort of identify some of these things? And then subsequently, you know, just a, hey, the storage room is filling up very quickly. That could become a problem if we don't do something about it. But similarly with review, I think that we could become much more fun and uh, constructive if we actually focus not just on saying these things are wrong, but also what's good and not to also put the burden of an individual reviewer to go through the entire piece. I think I very often have a very specific component that I can say, hey, this I, I think is really good and this not so much. So you mentioned the components and you early, earlier also mentioned the, the, the modular publication system. Um, I think that's what you've been working on uh, at Liberate Science. Um, so can you talk a bit more basically about your proposal? So something needs to change about this entire system. You have an idea. Can you summarize that a bit? Yeah. So, so really the underlying thing is about making research work visible. And then uh, there are two components to that. One is process-based publishing instead of output-based uh, pu publishing. So uh, really sharing step-by-step the research. So in essence, you have to think about you might have a theory uh, step in your research process if you do empirical work. Then you might go into you know, generating predictions. That's a step. Uh, and then you might design your study materials. And those materials are also a step. And these are then all linked together. So that when you look at one, you can immediately see the context. And each of these steps then gets a DOI so people can cite it. You know, uh, it also doesn't need to be the same person doing all of these steps. So it allows more granular recognition. And it allows you to also put files into these modules that aren't just text, right? Like data could be uh, a step in the research process. That, that's its own module. Uh, and the idea really being you can start building up this, uh, this interconnected web of all these different steps in a research process. And in essence, you know, it goes just deeper into the research process than an article can even do. So we get a completely new layer of information. And then we can also start asking these questions. What can we do with this information? How would that, for example, affect recognition and rewards? How would that uh, affect how we plan research, not just evaluate what we have done, but what we could do in the future? So there's, there's bringing all of that research process uh, work, making that visible. And then there's the other side of it, and that's around curation work. Uh, I think anybody who reads a lot of research 
is doing a lot of curation automatically, whether it's selecting stuff for your uh, lab group for to read or just thinking, oh, I want to keep a list of my favorite articles for 2022, um, but also the curation work that goes into journals. So what we've heard or what I've heard over the past decade quite often was this idea of overlay journals because so many research objects are being published outside of journals in repositories and in preprint servers, um, they, it's much harder to curate these. And overlay journals is this idea of curating any research object, uh, for example, with the DOI, uh, by a group of editors who say, hey, we want to you know, curate something on a specific theme, and other people might submit ideas, uh, things to include in that uh, overlay journal. And so this is something that uh, I was flabbergasted by when I read the preprint from last August that there were only 35 overlay journals um, at that time. And I thought, we've been talking so much about this. Why haven't we created this more? Because overlay journals and the curation work is incredibly important and it should be really easy. So that's the other side to the the proposal that we're making is to really make this uh, research work visible, curation and the research process you know, that's not just an idea anymore. It's actually possible now. Just for my understanding, and maybe also for uh, our listeners who may not be familiar with overlay journals, Chris, can you explain that a little bit more? Uh, because you just mentioned uh, that you were surprised that there were so few overlay journals. So can you just give us again the definition of these overlay journals? And again, what, what are they uh, essentially doing? Because that, that's a new term for me as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm surprised uh, whenever I talk about this that it's still very, very new in that sense. So uh, I, I can describe it a bit. Usually when you have uh, a publication, you submit it to journal A or journal B, and then uh, if it gets published in journal A, it won't get published in journal B. Now with a preprint, you don't go to journal A or B, you just put it on a preprint server and you're done. Uh, but what overlay journals do so say overlay journal A and overlay journal B, they could both include the same preprint uh, because it's relevant to the topic that they're curating. Uh, that means that by this idea of overlay journals, uh, that you remove this competition between journals to uh, include specific works on that. And uh, by doing so, we can actually you know, say, okay, well, what, what is good curation? What's a good overlay journal? And less this focus on let's compete for you know, the most uh, innovative research, which is such a problem in selection pressures for editorials or edit, uh, editors as well. So there's, um, that's really the, the core idea behind that. Wikipedia, I think, has the best description of an overlay journal. Uh, because I also sometimes struggle with it, but I, I tend to really focus on this. You publish it on a, on a repository or a preprint server, anything where you get a DOI, and then you can include it in whichever overlay journal you want, pretty much. So if I summarize your, your story, then basically the first step is chopping up the, the usual research product, right? The paper into like introduction uh, theory, predictions, methods, data, results, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then all these different modules uh, um, get linked to each other. 
Um, so that if I have a, let's say I have a data set, I publish that, and then other people could take that data, run analyses, publish their results, but then Gauri will take the same data and thinks of a different analytic approach and, and publish publishes her results as well. So I can see both the results section with the different analytic approaches. So that that's a bit of practice, right? How, how that would go. In practice, yes. Uh, the only thing is, is that it, we've noticed with our community is that you really have to think beyond the paper because what does this mean for your day-to-day work? It's much more complicated than you would first imagine. Not in terms of, you know, it's really complex to understand how to do it, but more in terms of what are actually the steps that go into your research process. And sometimes you might only afterwards realize that you took a step. So, for example, if you, um, you know, if you would just limit it to a paper, then you would forget about all the presentations that you do, about the abstracts you submit to conferences, about maybe the podcasts that you, you, you produce. Uh, or videos that you participate in. So it also opens up this window of just asking this question, what is research? Uh, Because there isn't a predefined research process and there isn't a predefined order uh, either. So, you know, it's this, what are the steps you, you take and how can we, how does that also evolve over time? So, you know, why don't you get credits uh, in your CV for the podcast? Well, partly because you also don't have a DOI for them per se. So this is something we we just cre- uh, went into a partnership. I haven't even shared it this publicly yet, but with an organization, Pubcast, and they they do audiobooks, but then for research articles. And we said, hey, well, how, what's important about this? This adds to the scholarly you know, discussion. Uh, it's original work, but if you just put it on your SoundCloud, it's going to disappear, probably. So how do we make sure this gets archived, that people can cite it? So you can really expand it, um, all the research steps. Cool. We have our first scoop um, in the podcast. Um, but I was wondering, so you can publish all these things, all of them. It not it just going to be like one huge mess of these smaller outputs? Because I mean, I keeping up with all the reading in the journals is already like tricky for me to read research that I need to <clears throat> kind of know to do my work. But this just sounds like an like an ex- like the explosion we saw with preprints on steroids. Well, I do call this preprints on steroids in that sense. So, but I I do want to admit that I think this is a bit of a a, a false question because it's already a huge mess. So uh, in that sense, uh, it's also this question of how can we wade through the mess? The idea of we can read everything and understand everything, those times are gone. Like we just have to accept it. Uh, So for anybody who's listening and has a backlog of 200,000 books that they want to read, let them go, you know, prioritize. And I I think with this, it's, it's similar. You know, when you have all of these different research steps, you know, when you are finding something, when you're trying to find a data set, you're not interested in all of these other modules out there, the abstracts for conferences, the presentations. No, you're specifically interested in those that are data. So you can also cull much more because there's a new um, selection mechanism that you can apply because you can say, what is the step that I'm interesting or, uh, interested in uh, or different forms, search for those, 
and then you could say, okay, only those data sets that you know have uh, have been built on by five other uh, authors. Pardon me, I was swallow too much air. When I so there's there's also this question of we have these databases right now, and you know you just search through a list, but what, we can do much more than that. So you've now given us a very exciting possibility of curating, well, not curating, but opening up basically the entire research process and all related research outputs. So where, are, where, where can we find this? How can we start? How can, how can listeners who are interested who say, wow, this is like a, uh, you know, a genius idea. Um, obviously, it's coming from you. You're introducing our listeners to this who may not be familiar with it, also including me. Where can we find this and how can someone start? Yeah, so there's two ways. Uh, either you can say, okay, I have some spare time. You go to researchequals.com and you, you know, you log in, you create an account and start playing around. That's, uh, that's all, all that's necessary. The flip side of that is, is uh, it might be a bit intimidating doing this all on your own. And we recognize that. And so we, we've started, we're just finishing that up this week for the first time. We started Research Equals Cohorts, where we invite primarily uh, junior researchers, but uh, may be of all, all stages, to come in and over seven lessons over three and a half weeks to sort of get familiar with everything and meet some other people who are interested in this. So if anybody is interested in that, um, you know, we're, we're currently evaluating, but it seems likely that we'll be running this uh, again in April. Uh, and then, you know, come join a cohort, meet people who are interested, interested in this as well. And just also spend a bit of time thinking about how to do research differently, because, you know, we also talked about well, what does it mean to be a kind collaborator? Like that's that has nothing to do with research equals, but it is very important to become a better researcher, uh, more considerate researcher in that sense. I think that also ties in to um, the the other um, um, issue you're working on, um, so to so to say. So you've talked a lot about the distribution of power in academia. Um, your your organization, Liberate Science, is also a worker cooperative, if I understood correctly. Um, so can you talk a bit more about that, the distribution of power, why you started a worker um, cooperative? Um, there must be a reason. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and I just want to preface this, that we tried to become a worker cooperative. And I'll get back to this in a second. <laughs> okay. uh, but, but this idea really, after I, I decided to leave academia, there was this point of, well, how do I keep working on this these problems uh, and make sure that I can do that sustainably? And then, you know, I was looking into the finances of some uh, open science institutions who thankfully make their finances public. And there was this, this, this big problem that I saw popping up. It was that for every $1 that they earned themselves, there was $6 of funding coming in from big funders. And so if these big funders, they make decisions every year about how they spend their money or, you know, over a strategy for four years. And if they decide open science or this topic is no longer of interest to us, those $6 would shrink or go away. What happens to these projects then? And these are nonprofit projects. Um, very often. So I thought, okay, how can we uh, swap that around and say, how do we make $6 ourselves? And if we get funding, it's just one. 
so that we're sustainable beyond just these funding streams and these decisions that people make. And I thought, okay, then you need to go into the for-profit uh, entity. So Liberate Science is a for-profit entity. But I, you know, I am an anti-capitalist like uh, the next one. But this question then arises, how do you make an ethical business in a capitalist space that, you know, does have these tendencies? And worker co-ops are one way. But then you get to the point of actually trying to incorporate a business. And then you Google a bit and you go to a notary and you go to an accountant and they say, why would you do this? Or Google says, here is 10 results how to incorporate a limited liability company. And there's very few resources. There are resources, but very few uh, relatively on how to set up a worker co-op. So we ended up going with a regular for-profit, a limited liability company and thinking, okay, how can we incorporate this idea in there? Because distributing power is the antithesis of accumulating power, right? If, if, if uh, I want to gain as much power as I, as I want, then I'm not going to try and empower other people uh, to make decisions that they can, you know, um, they can actually influence. So in a business, how do you do this? The big thing that we're actually working on right now is uh, is also to provide uh, members in the community a way to become supporting members uh, for research equals, and then to say you, you if you become a supporting member, but like a society, then you can come to our general assemblies every three months, and then you know we report on how the finances are doing, how uh, historically like how things are developing whether we have new ideas that we're thinking about implementing, like uh, pricing models or just business model, and then go like, do people object uh, in this community? Do people consent to it? And to actually also start practicing how, how if we're given the power to decide things, how do we actually use it? Um, there's this great book from the 60s that says uh, that the you can't just from one day to the next give people full democratic power to create the world that they want to see because then they won't know what to do with it. You have to actually educate and give them the tools to, to work with that. So that's also sort of what we're trying to do through these assemblies. And I've noticed I have a lot to learn and uh, there's also a lot to win is how do you actually come up with things to collectively decide on? What does it mean to be in a direct democracy within these assemblies to say, well, what are topics we want to discuss about? How do we, you know, how do we actually manage this meeting? How do we make sure that people stay on time? How do we, how do people have the information they need in a way that's comprehensible for them? So I'm going a bit nerdy on this because it's, you know, I spent a lot of time these weeks on it, but the idea being, what does distributing power look like in a super practical sense in the everyday? What would it look like in a, in a workflow what would it look like, um, you know, just in even even just your relationships and friendships? What what does this mean to to have uh, equal or equitable power? That's that that is very inspiring. Uh, the way you you know transpose that into different domains of life, but. Uh, having just come out, well, come out in inverted commas of a recent pandemic, um, I'm quite curious about this setup uh, of extending democracy uh, or collective decision making. I think that's one of the things that at least the Netherlands really tried in, in uh, times of crisis. 
uh, and I'm kind of looking here at Marino uh, as well as my uh, former Red Team <laughs> colleague here. Um, and I have to say that while the ideal of what you describe, Chris, really appeals to me, I also wonder in practical senses, especially in times of emergency and crisis, can this even actually really work? I mean, one one thing is to obviously prepare the people that you are going to be handing over this this level of power uh, to equip them with their knowledge, you know, of what is being asked of them and the skills uh, of how to, you know, perhaps curate information accurately to arrive at an informed decision. So, yes, I agree with you that, you know, before handing over uh, a full democracy or collective decision making, there needs to be a preparation stage as well. But having said that, you know, if you look at what we or at least what the Dutch government, in my point of view, tried to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. In many ways, I think uh, they tried to transfer this responsibility in uh, what was called as an open democracy. Well, we are an intelligent community. You know, we all know how to make our own decisions. I think it was, to a large extent, a failure because it actually led to more polarization than to quick, informed decisions that needed to be taken in an emergency. So I know that I'm extrapolating what you're suggesting, maybe putting you in a bit of a difficult situation because you're talking about it in a different contexts. But how do you see that happening? Or how did you view that um, in the recent pandemic? Yeah, so I think that's a very good question. And that sort of goes through... Uh, three key points for me, uh, you know, that one, this, if it's not easy, it's definitely still, it still can be the right thing to do. And I think that with this radicalness that uh, that I always propose, it's also the recognizing that it's not easy. For us, it hasn't been easy. It hasn't been easy because it is a, a shit ton of work, if I may say so, on this podcast. And, um, you know, if you have... Uh, if any anyone here is familiar with polyamorous relationships where you can be involved with multiple people at the same time consensually, so consensual non-monogamy, the big thing there is that it's incredibly emotionally intense. It's not easy. Uh, people might say it's just, you know, uh, flinging around, uh, but the so much of it is incredibly confronting and incredibly hard work. Uh, and then you get to this point of, you know, you can have these ideas around how to run a system and they can be very idealistic, as you say, Gaul, but then how do you put this into practice? And this is where also the point of how do you bring an individualized society into such an idealized situation? It, it, and the pandemic was very abrupt. So how do we go from that uh, so quickly? It's, it's, it is likely to fail. Uh, there's a lot of hiccups in that sense. So we need to, so for me, it's this point of how do we create community in the stable times so that when we hit these, uh, these bumps or these, you know, major bumps, uh, that we can then utilize the skills that we've, uh, and the, in the networks and the communities that we've built, um, to really enact these radical things. Because in essence, the, the in-between time is preparatory time. It's not relaxing time. So, so you just mentioned that you, are quite radical. Um, so, some some might agree. Um, so two questions there basically. Um, 
some would say science is also a form of activism. Um, do you see yourself and the initiative you started as activistic? Um, and there's indeed this this perspective that science um, scientists can be activists. And would you subscribe to that, or do you think that's not the way to go? I would start off by saying everything is political. So even thinking uh, that not being an activist is possible is to me out of this world. And this immediately comes to this discussion around, is there even something like objectivity or value-free science? And it's it's also one of these questions where you're like, ah, it's not, not that interesting. We know it isn't. We've had decades of philosophers and just in general discussion around this. So let's recognize it. Let's just acknowledge it. Uh, say what it is that might bias us, uh, where we're coming from, how limited our worldview is, or just how our worldview was shaped, and um, you know, deal with it. Because very often what happens if you're not in favor of this value-free science, then, then um, you know, it very often goes to anti-science populism. Like either you uh, you believe in this value-free science or it becomes value-laden and then it very quickly becomes anti-science. And there's such a huge middle ground in there because, I mean, I, it's still a topic I'm thinking about, but there was a recent paper that came out and they talk about this um, about this a lot. And uh, it's this question of what what is in between those two positions and how can we even start thinking about, you know, incorporating subjective science, but also recognize that not all subjective science is equal either. Uh, so what are, again, some of the processes that allow us to understand whether we can rely on a specific set of information or not, even if it's value-loaded? Because ultimately, it's the process that matters, not the values. Uh, and similarly, uh, when for example, make a mistake, it's not bad that we make a mistake, it's how we deal with it that matters. Can you explain a bit when you say value-free, what, what do you mean by that when you say that there are, you know, uh, uh, groups of uh, individuals who think that research or science should be value-free? Yes, uh, I can definitely expand on that, but I need to hold myself back to not go full philosophy of science mode in this because that is very off-putting. So the idea there being that, uh, you know, value-free science says uh, there's a truth and that we're gonna find out. And value-laden science says, well, there is no absolute truth. There's just an, an approximation that we can get. And we need to understand how our, you know, how what we know limits us from understanding that. Just to follow up on one of your earlier points saying um, nobody is value free because we all have our biases and perspectives due to, you know, a wide ranging, wide range of factors. So the um, idea of saying science, scientists are not activistic is in itself a uh, uh, false statement. I'm just trying to summarize a bit quickly. But there is also a difference between uh, Gowrie studying research practices and trying to improve them, which 
is definitely not value free, of course, um, and wanting to change the entire freaking system, um, right? So of how we publish, how we do work, how we distribute power, like that's a bit more sure. Sure. Radical. Let me let me, let me flip it around then. Uh, how does science, as we practice it, enable the um, you know the exploitation of uh, of the world of the earth of people in the world. And so if we take, for example, the, the, I mean, in psychology, it might not be as relevant, but if we take geophysical sciences, they've contributed over the decades, incredible amounts to the crisis that we're in right now uh, with respect to the climate. So would we say that this isn't a form of activism in and of itself as well, even though it has negative consequences, right? Like, I'm not saying activism is always good. That's 100% uh, something I, 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 yeah, I'm saying. Uh, but it's this question of what are the consequences of what we're doing? And that there will be consequences to me seems incredibly obvious, whether that is good or bad. And so we need to recognize that and grapple with it because it's the same with uh, you know, vaccine research. It has consequences and we need to grapple with those consequences. And... Uh, you, you know, the research in various domains will have specific types of consequences as well. And sort of saying objective, something is objective or value-free, so hands-off blame uh, to no one. So I would say let's not get defensive if there are consequences and simply learn and understand what those are and deal with them. And what are what are some what are some tangible ways in your experience that that one can deal with uh, when you say you know uh, deal with them? Can you can you give some tangible ways of dealing with these consequences? Um, that's that's my first question, and the second one is actually more of a remark because I think when you talk about research in it in and of itself um, not being value free, or rather that there are groups of individuals that think that some research is uh, objective versus being subjective. It kind of ties in with this age-old debate in a way I'm oversimplifying it, but between the quantitative empirical and the qualitative research. Um, in, in, in some ways, it reminds me of these discussions that I've had with researchers largely from these different methodological approaches. One tends to believe that they are more objective just because they use more uh, uh, approaches that are aligned with statistics uh, and also tend to uh, state their analytical procedures up front, whereas qualitative researchers tend to go with the data and modify their methodology as the data goes um, uh, along uh, in, in their process. Um, but coming back to some of these practical applications, can you, can you, can you give us some insight into how to deal with them, Chris? I, I can try. I think that, you know, it always depends on the specific context that you're in, uh, how to translate these things. But one of the things that as a, as a researcher myself, that's very easy to get sucked into is to think in these abstract and you know, systemic level things only and to forget that there's an everyday consequence of these uh, aspects. So I always, what I always recommend is to find those everyday outcomes of these uh, system level uh, issues or things that, that, that are going on. And that can be incredibly local, right? Because a lot of people get 
um, get paralyzed by the idea of, well, you know, the climate crisis. How, how am I going to do something about that? Because it's so huge, it isn't just me creating it. But then you get this question, well, what is happening locally in your direct, like 10 meters from where you're sitting right now that you could change? That could literally be turning down the heating, even though I recognize that individualizing the crisis is also not effective. Um, but simply asking these questions of what is the ramification in your everyday life uh, of this problem and then doing something about it. And, you know, it won't be enough to change everything, but it'll be something. And then from there, it's the same thing that I mentioned earlier. You can start practicing this radicalness because it's also unreasonable to think that, you know, if you've never been radical before and you've never stood for the values or activism that you have, and then you get into an incredibly important meeting and you get to participate that you then have either the guts, the, 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 the framework or the, you know, the mental resources to actually do it. And very often, if it isn't the solution, it doesn't mean it's fruitless. Um, and I think that we have to really encourage ourselves to practice uh, radical living in, in such a sense. Thanks, Chris, um, and thanks for sharing that idea of the radical living um, um, that you mentioned and that it starts with small steps and then eventually you can even build a um, business out of uh, radical living. Um, do you have like a final remark to make to our listeners? Yeah, there's one thing that I've been discussing with quite some people and I wanted to put it into this podcast for people to mull over. And we've talked a lot in the past decade about questionable research practices and how, how that has ended up in this recognition and rewards you know, initiative. And we've been talking uh, amongst ourselves quite a lot, like outside of this podcast. And we said, well, there's also questionable academic practices. And what's the consequence of that? Because research integrity isn't just uh, in the research, it's also on the workfloor. So we've been thinking about, well, if we have this discussion about questionable academic practices, what would that lead to in a similar program as recognition and rewards, which is much more system level? And then we were thinking about it in terms of ac accountability and justice. What would that look like within the academic space as well? I would love to hear what listeners think about that. It definitely fits with the topic of this podcast. So I wanted to be sure to mention it. Cool. Thanks. And that is indeed a, well, a question to our listeners. And I hope um, that they can um, well provide us with answers or, or suggestions on, on where how to think about that, basically. Um, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our conversation because it's been wonderful. We could do it for hours, um, I believe. Um, but, um, well, academic practices have to go on during the day uh, for us as well, of course. Um, so this was Research Integrity Matters with Chris Hartgerink, hosted by Gauri and Marino and produced by Maarten van Woerkom. We thank Netherlands Research Integrity Network for co-initiating and sponsoring this podcast series. And you can follow Research Integrity Matters in your favorite podcast app, like Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to ask you to leave a review if you can, because that will help others to discover this podcast as well. We would love to answer your questions, so if you have questions for us or for our future guests, which we will announce on social media, then you can find our email or Twitter accounts in the show notes. We'll also um, mention uh, the research equals and where you can find that in the show notes as well. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening and until the next episode.